Sorry, Ed's going to put his little nub on top of that. <laughs> Actually, I think Evan should try and get his globule into <laughs> the holes. The globules go in the mogul flows. <laughs> yeah, the, on the mogul horn and the moogle the blob. blobs. <laughs> and the dribble level. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up, it takes a village of highly skilled tradesmen to be the best darn town around in Villagers. Next up, it takes more than cocoa to be the best darn candy maker around in Chocolate Factory. And lastly, it takes ice cold strategy to build the best darn intergalactic research module in Arctia. I'm your host, Celeste Angelus. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid game explorers. I'm Evan Bernstein, and an anagram of my name is Ban Inverse 10. I'm Ed Povolitis, an anagram of Laid Positive. I'm Mike Grenier, also known as Murkier Gene. Now the thing about these anagrams, this is three cool names for games. Ban Inverse 10, Laid Positive, and Mercury Gene. <laughs> That's true. That's our new uh, futuristic D&D campaign character's names. <laughs> hey, everybody out there. We are calling you if you have something to say. We will advertise your hidden treasures on the show. Want Evan to wish your brother a happy birthday? Maybe you want Mike to announce the publishing of your first novel. Want Celeste to tell your gaming group to clean up their dishes. Pick one or all of us to read your ad at a great rate. You can write it yourself or we will write it for you. But be warned. <laughs> Advertise on the show today. Just go to our website to learn how. And as always, please leave us a like, a rating, a review, a... Ring that YouTube bell. Ring the YouTube bell. Yes, our YouTube channel is hopping. Some discourse on Discord. Oh yeah, Discord. 6.30, Thursday nights. <laughs> Interact with us. Twitch, 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 twitch. <laughs> and thanks for listening, everybody. Our first game up this week is Villagers, designed by Hakan Garter. Published by Sinister Fish Games in 2019. Number of players, 1 to 5, ages 10 and up. Playtime, 30 to 60 minutes. Okay, Mike, tell us what's in the box. Okay, on the cover of the box, we have an unusually tidy-looking group of medieval peasant workers marching in line across a white background. Inside the box, there are 30 basic villager cards, 100 regular villagers, 5 founder cards, 5 village square boards, 5 card divider boards, 150 coin tokens, 26 solo mode cards, which sounds pretty cool to me, and, of course, a rules booklet. And that's... What's in the box? Before we draft and craft an artisan review just for you, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Villagers, you are the founder of a new village during the Middle Ages in the years after a great plague. The villagers have valuable and unique skills, but they all rely on other villagers with very specific crafts to be able to work, such as raw materials, tools, and services. Each turn you'll draft a number of villagers from the road based on the amount of food in your village. Then you'll build a number of homes for your villagers based on the number of builders in your village. If you find that people can work together to make a profit, you'll do well when the market comes to town. 
The game ends after two market rounds, and the player with the most prosperous village wins. Simple, right? We played this game on... Tabletopia! Ah, my fave! Yep, and Evan was spilling coins all over my board. But that wasn't my fault. It was 100% you your, board. your fault. <laughs> we did this for Twitch on Thursday night. 6.30 Eastern Time. Be there. Twitch, Twitch, Twitch. Join us. Interact with us. We will talk to you. Yeah, and the look of the game digitally, I don't think I would have gotten more out of it physically. I mean, I think everything was there. And the pictures aren't such that I would have really wanted to see the art on the card. No, the art was very well done, I thought. And the, the digital version seemed to have... Uh, nice quality representation to the card. Yes. Um, the art itself, uh, I, it didn't hugely engage me. I thought they were kind of neat seeing the little caricatures of the villagers kind of walking around doing their little job. Yeah, a little sketchy, but nice. I, I like the art, yeah. They were so clean. <laughs> yep, and it was very Euro gamey. I don't know if it was the iconography or simply the description of the, how the mechanics work with it that threw me off, but it took me a little while to grasp that. Yeah, because there's a difference between having a prerequisite, which is, in order to play this card, this other thing must already be in your tableau. While the unlock thing means, well, this guy needs to get equipment from this other guy, and if you're in your village, yay, you get money from the bank. But if he's in somebody else's village, you pay them. And that kind of feels dirty when you're paying somebody else. I don't know, I hate paying somebody else. (laughs) Because you're helping them to victory. Yeah. That money stays on the card that you paid too. So it'll collect victory points from having done so much work for the village. Right. It makes your blacksmiths, for example, more valuable if I have to pay them to unlock my stuff. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can't do without visiting the blacksmith first though. So I, I get why that is. Yeah. Or the carpenter. So that's the, the guy in my village. I, I try to use as much. And I think it kind of gears your village because you want to try to unlock as many things based on the tradesmen you have instead of trying to give it to other people. So I'm like, yeah, I want to find those those things that work off of carpentry. So let me find those people. But they're not showing up in the road. <laughs> yeah, my blacksmith made a killing off of you guys. Had somebody paid one of Mike's guys one time less than I would have won, it didn't feel like a big deal to throw $2 uh, to somebody else. It made a difference in the end. Or even to the bank. Now, if you pay the bank, you know, it's like, I'm not paying Mikey, but I'm paying the bank for to do this. And then, uh, you know, at $2 you didn't have. And if you lost by a buck, ah. Yep. It's a bit of a learning curve. Once you learn it, though, it's pretty easy to play. I mm-hmm. benefited tremendously watching a tutorial video. And I'm going to give a shout out to a very popular how to play guy. He. It's called Watch It Played, and he is consistently my favorite for clarity. I really do think I would have struggled had I just listened to a reading of the rulebook. A video tutorial helped a lot in this game. So I ended up winning, but uh, I was still super sad that I could not get my fromagier guy out on the table. I wanted that cheesemonger. (laughs) <laughs> and Evan like kind of hate drafted away the milkmaid that I needed to to put him out. And that made me really sad. <laughs> well, it's not a drafting game if there isn't a little hate drafting. And yeah. To me, that kind of goes hand in hand. It's not just paying attention to <laughs> what you're drafting, but also paying attention to the other players. Otherwise, there's almost there's no interaction if you're just doing your own thing, irrespective of what others are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You do have to pay attention. 
I enjoyed the shopping part and I enjoyed uh, stacking, putting everything together and getting from the miner to the jeweler. It's like the miner makes me a buck and the jeweler makes me 20 bucks. Yeah, and that's a big money right there. Like, I didn't have a lot of the really big guys, but I had like a lot of small things working for me. So in my starting hand, I had some pretty good big cards. Okay, great. I'm, these are going to be very valuable. I just need to get the the intermediary cards or the starter cards so I can lay out my big cards. Waiting, 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 <laughs> waiting, waiting. Last round of the game. Oh, there's the guy I need in order to play these cards, which I finally was able to do, but that was frustrating. Well, you, you might not ever see him because... The way the deck plays out, some cards are just not going to hit the table. Yeah, and that's what I was afraid of. I had this, like, 24-point card in my hand or something. I'm like, whoa, and couldn't play it all game, but I did squeak it out at the very end to make a decent, like, last play. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered about the balance of a couple of the cards. One was the Monk, which is a great wild card. It is just a straight-up wild card. You can use it for any link in the chain. And... Then the smuggler. The smuggler seemed so outbalancing. Oh, my God. He's almost game-breaking how good he is. That's what I worried about on that one. Double your points. Yeah, it gives you one big shot in the arm. I mean, it depends on how you use it, though. If you use it too early, oh, you got nine points for the smuggler. If you use it when you have, like, somebody worth 24 points out, though, bam, it gets you an immediate 24 points just for playing it. And when endgame is around 100 points, that's a quarter of your score for on one yeah you know yeah but despite you guys smuggling i still ended up <laughs> getting that one extra point <laughs> a dollar <laughs> over there is honor among smugglers <laughs> ask console there's some of those special <laughs> cards though i i found that on the last turn of the game they're all kind of not all of them but a bunch of them are dead cards that's another balance issue yeah yeah no yeah, well, i think a lot of cards are gonna be dead near the end because you're only looking for specific things so Mm-hmm. Having the ones that you've already seen or the, the the middle of the road guys you've already got on your village, mm-hmm. it's like, I don't need another one of those uh, you know, carpenters. I've had one since turn one. Yeah, exactly. You, f- you end up buying a few default cards at the end because usually by then you have something in your engine that can benefit from small cards by just having more of them mm-hmm, right there's like multipliers like the log rafter he multiplied off of the different amount of lumberjacks that you had on the board when you're shopping it's kind of a cool thing that there's a row of cards that are face down and a row of cards that are face up that you can shop for and on the back of the card it tells you what category or suit the card is from so if you're looking for somebody in the hay suit for instance you might just pick the random face down hay card and hope it's one of the ones you can use because he's not face up and like, I don't really want one of these face up ones. So I'll take the chance on this hay one because that's what I Yeah, Celeste was grabbing for those specials. Like anytime they came up, she got super excited. Yes, I was tempted, but oftentimes I went for the safe choice of what I could see. <laughs> but you got so excited when you saw one. I know. And <laughs> I mean, there's a smuggler in there. Mm-hmm. There's That's a why. And a Once I saw that smuggler card, I'm like, what if there's another one? <laughs> oh, there was. <laughs> and there was. If I had gotten them both, that's it. Game over. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you had a 24-point person on the board. I mean. At early, too. Yeah. Right? That tailor early, on early. And that is, I think, the most expensive card in the game, the tailor. Mm-hmm. And it's not particularly hard to put out. I didn't have very much trouble. 
Well, probably the only one. Yeah. Nope. Evan had the tailor out too. Well, no, that was the one I did have trouble putting out because you had a wild card to plug your gap. Yeah, I did. Oh. Only at the very end because the guy, yeah, because the prerequisite card finally came out on the last round that I could put him out. I did use the monk <sighs> in that chain. Exactly. You needed your wild card. You know? Right. Because I saw a 24 point card. Oof. I was a little bit surprised at how dark the theme was a little bit. Now, <laughs> after the plague and all these survivors coming in, trying to struggle to get food and shelter. Yeah, it doesn't show up on the box cover. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me at all. I, when I heard Evan reading that, I'm like, why is there a plague in here? <laughs> yeah, there doesn't need to be, right? Yeah, there doesn't need to be. This could just be a regular village. And everything seems bright and cheerful on these cards. They're bright mm-hmm. colors. They're purple and pink and red. And then I was totally shocked when Evan said there was a plague because I completely missed that. It's just a Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that didn't come through in the game. Yeah, yeah unnecessary to the theme, I think. Right. Now, if you had like one card in there who was the, the plague or something, he infects your village and, you know, mi- minus four, you know, modifier or something, then yeah, that would, that would make sense. But that didn't happen. I'm curious about the solo mode of the game where you are a lone village striving to prosper in spite of the dreaded countess and her evil machinations. That does sound interesting. Mm. There's a lot of solo, solo gamers out there that are really looking for something, and that sounds like it would be pretty cool. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury villagers. Ed? It's a cool-looking drafting game of finding the synergies and value for your village. I'm not sure how long I'll stay, but I'll dig this up for another play. Mike? I had a lot of fun building a network of villagers and calculating the probabilities of finding the ones I needed. So I'll dig it up. Evan? Villagers was a fun intermediate level drafting game, and I liked the artwork. The mechanics and iconography were a bit obscure at times, but overall, solid with good replayability. Dig it up. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the look and feel of the game wasn't memorable enough for me to dig it up. Bury it. Evan, where can you find this game? Well, I think you can find it at online game stores. And when they reopen the brick and mortar game stores, retails for about $26. And we played this version online at Tabletopia. So try it there for free. If you have thoughts about villagers, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter. Facebook and Instagram and Twitch, 630 Thursday nights. Twitch, Twitch, Twitch. Yeah, Twitch, 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 Twitch. We are interactive. We will talk with you. We want to hear from you. Our next game up is Chocolate Factory, designed by David Digby, Matthew Dunstan, and Brett J. Gilbert. Published by Alley Cat Games in 2019. Number of players, one to four. Ages 10 and up. Playtime, 45 to 90 minutes. Mikey, tell us what's in the box. On this colorful and active box cover, you'll see a brick factory with all sorts of candies and chocolates swirling and rocketing out the door. Uh, Inside the box, there's four double-layered factory boards, a bookkeeping board, 124 custom wooden chocolate pieces, 40 coal tokens, 30 conveyor tiles, 36 wooden discs, 18 50 euro coins for when you lap the scoreboard, which you will, five department store cards, 30 factory part cards, 54 corner shop cards, 35 employee cards, four cards to store your coal and unsold candy, 
four reference cards, a day marker, and a player one marker. Looks like a chocolate bar. Yum. And that's what's in the box. Before we treat you to a sweet review, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Chocolate Factory, you are assigned the task of Chief Chocolate Maker. Each player starts with a factory with two parts along a conveyor belt of several pallets. At the beginning of each day, and each day is a turn, everyone will draft one new factory part and hire one new employee that will arrive with the day's shipment of coal. Then the player will run their factory for three shifts that starts with pushing cocoa beans down their conveyor belt. You'll need coal to power the parts that will convert your beans into delicious chocolates. At the end of the day, sell chocolates that you made to the corner store or the department stores, or sell them for some more coal. The game ends after six days, and the player with the most money wins. So you're polluting the world with diabetes and coal smoke. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I missed this game, guys. Where did you play it? We played it on Tabletopia. Yep. We sure did. And I'm kind of <laughs> glad I missed it. You know my feelings about food-themed games. They make me too hungry. Yeah. <laughs> there were so many delicious candies on the board. Yeah, you would have mm-hmm. lost. Chocolate bars. How mm. was the representation of the pieces uh, and the board on Tabletopia? It felt like I was playing the board game. All the pieces looked like little cardboard chunks and... The art looked exactly like it does on the regular game. The chocolate pieces in the game are big wooden pieces, and it looked in the tabletopia like big wooden meeples. And everything made a clicking noise, too, like when it landed on something else, which was cool. I hear you can buy a version of the game in which they'll put real chocolate in there for you, but you can play it only once. You can order the expansion pack, which is more chocolate. Ooh, yeah. Oh, that! Oh, don't give them any good ideas, Celeste. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. And I'll buy it. <laughs> but the one thing I was kind of missing is it looks like in the physical version, the cardboard uh, pallet, you can like push the pieces down the conveyor belt. And you were not able to do that in table so They had to uh... move each individual pallet in order to do the conveyor belt. While I'm sure that looking at the, the player board, you just be able to push the thing once and it'll all slide down, I think. Very satisfyingly. If you've ever flown on an airplane, you've gone through check-in, you know, through security check-in, in which you have to put all your contents into your tray and then roll them down a conveyor. That's what was going. Yeah, and, and your player board is a dual-layer cardboard, so where your, your pallets are going down, it's like a little chute, so it looks like it's going down. How was the playtime, guys? <laughs> well, I, I the... Game time is described officially as 45 to 90 minutes. But (laughs) being who we are, we, of course, eclipsed that and multiplied it by almost three. There was a big uh, two phases of the game where it allowed for simultaneous play. And we kind of decided the first couple turns to just go up player by player. Is it enjoyable for that long? Celeste, I, I definitely think you would have felt it was too long. And I was probably on the edge of believing it was too long for me it wasn't too long but it started to to drag at the end for the actual time we spent on it but i think in person it wouldn't feel as tedious and long what happens with this game i found is that your first day you're very you're sort of limited in what you can do you have a couple of choices okay and you kind of that goes quickly by the time you get to the sixth day the amount of choices and variations are over are almost overwhelming Analysis paralysis. Uh, pretty much, you could you could get to that point. I think some people could definitely find that frustration. Sort of like the opposite of villagers. Then, 
where it's like nothing left to do by the last turn. This is too much to do by the last turn. <laughs> yeah, it just keeps increasing the amount of stuff you could do. If this game went on three more turns, you'd double your options again. There's like a million ways to score. There are so many different calculations you're make. You're trying to make in your mind about if I do this, I can, okay, I get these points, but I'm also going to subtract these points because I'm not doing this. And do that like five times 50. Isn't that a common feature of Euro games that you end up with too many things to score? Yeah, it's a feature. And then a, a big restriction in the game is the coal. You only have a, a limited amount of coal and you have way more ways to burn it. So you always have to <laughs> yeah. make a struggle of which parts am I going to power because you don't have enough coal to power everything. Really? What, what are you burning it in? You have machines on the side. It's like a factory. So you have to spend like... Your machine might say, spend two to turn this chocolate into two of these kind of chocolates. Oh, you got different yeah. machine, different chocolate mm-hmm. making machines and they each yeah. take coal. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, let me see if we're supposed to start with any coal. I will let you start with some. I don't want any. But I also want to run on wind power. I will start with 45 coal. Thank you. My my uncle was a coal baron in my cho- mm-hmm. in my chocolate world. That's, that's cool that you get to role play a character out like that. He gave me a leg up. Oh, and I lost my leg in a chocolate machine. So ironically, a, yeah, yeah. You have you have eight positions in your factory floor, Celeste, and you start with your basic ones. You know, one, two, three, but you can expand that as many as eight. And these machines get very complex, and the order in which they appear also is is important. So when your stuff goes into the factory, uh, after each like part of your turn, it moves to the next part of your factory. So then there's two machines that face off next to each other so you could use both of the machines in that slot and then your bean or whatever it is by that point will move to the next slot and you can alter it again and so you choose the order in which you do that so like you might have one that says turn the bean into a chunk and then the machine across from might say turn a chunk into two chocolate bars right 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 so you got to mix and match until you can actually get a piece of of sellable candy Yeah, you have a bunch of contracts at the top of your board, a small, medium, and large contract, and it tells you which candies you need to fill that contract and get the points for it. So you can't just dump out any old candy. You got to try and make your contracts. So you're trying to get different combinations of candy. And you can only store so much. If you start making a bunch of candy that you can't otherwise sell or send to market or whatever, Mm -hmm. you can only store two pieces at the end of your round. If you have more than that, you have to convert it back to coal. So you wind up you know being inefficient big waste yeah exactly but there's a lot of places to spend it though my great-grandfather my mother's grandfather and this is why my mother was a fat kid worked for cadbury chocolate and made chocolates in his basement yeah we had a chocolate factory nearby did did you win the golden ticket no (laughs) (laughs) one of the important things you need to do is strike a balance between uh Good contracts that give you a lot of points and fulfilling lots of contracts because one of the ways to score was having the most filled contracts. Yeah, there was a nice variety in how you score points in there. Oh, fulfilling contracts and having the most of those or getting to all the different department doors would also give you a lot of bonus points. So, and it's hard to yeah. do both of them. And an interesting twist is that depending on the employees you get on any given day, that will determine which department store you're allowed to sell your wares to. You can't just go to any department store. There's five choices. You can only choose one employee, and one employee is tied to one of those department stores specifically. So that's another piece of your strategy. You have to decide, okay, which department store do I want to go after this day? Yeah, that draft every day, it's 
so interesting because you can only get one new part and one new employee. And you're going to be left with something after the other players go. And you're like, uh, which one do I really want? And the employee gives you a special ability that turn. So, But sometimes you're just choosing them because you want to get more favor into that department store because the person who has the most favor gets a huge 16 points for, for that at the end of the game. For the, and that's per department store. You could be first in each of those department stores and get $16 for points for each department store, five of them. Sounds like lots of calculations. Tons. Yeah, there is. Because the, the large uh, corner stores, you could also sell like three candy to them and get 18 points as well. So Corner stores are like convenience stores? or right, so Corner stores are the ones that are like the, the gold that are in front of you, while the department stores are the ones that everybody can send stuff to. As long as they have the right employee. What you're saying reminds me of Grand Austria Hotel. Yeah, there's a bit mm. of that. Yeah. yeah, good point. You see recurring themes in these Euro games where, you know, there's complex scoring because there's lots of different moving parts and people. And I really did enjoy the employee piece in Grand Austria Hotel. It's sort of a, I find it to be one of the easiest custom victory point things to keep track of. Ah, what does my employee give me? Yeah. And getting synergy built up between those things is one of the most important features of any of the Euro games where you build an engine. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Chocolate Factory. Evan? Much like a box of chocolates, there are so many choices you can make. There are no replayability issues here with this game. There is a near dizzying amount of calculations to make. While it might be bittersweet for some, it was a nice treat for me. Dig it up. Mike? I love engine building games, and this was literally that, building an efficient factory assembly line to make candy. So I say, dig it up. Ed? I enjoy resource management games, and this one offers an interesting puzzle to work with. And while I think the online version is a little fiddly to work with, I'll personally dig up a copy for another play to see how that works. Evan, where can you find Chocolate Factory? You can find it at local game stores and online. It retails for about $60. We played it online at Tabletopia. You should try it out for free. If you have thoughts about Chocolate Factory, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and 6.30s on Twitch, Thursday nights. Our last game up this week is Arctea, designed by Stefan Kogel. Published by Mermel Spielwerkstatt und Verlag, AG, in 2008. Number of players, 2 to 4, ages 12 and up. Playtime, 15 to 45 minutes. Okay, Mike, tell us what's in the box. The box cover transports you to a foreboding ice planet, where it appears that four different groups of colonists are fighting over crumbling real estate to place their inflatable space donut buildings on. Inside, you'll find 36 Mooglus, nine for each player, which are stacks of parts each consisting of a large ring, a smaller disc, and an even smaller nub on top. In addition, there are 36 icy hex tiles to make up the board. And, of course, there's some sort of rule book in there. And that's... What's in the box? Well, before we crack the ice on this review, Evan, tell us how it's played. On the distant ice moon Arctia, players must try to place their futuristic habitation and science modules, called Mooglus, on adjacent ice tiles in such a way that they control as much of the ice as possible. But be warned! 
Mooglus, which are separated from the main group of the same color, cannot survive this hostile climate, and they will be removed. Each turn, players can either place a Mooglu or move one tower they control. Players who have placed all their Mooglus can start to remove empty ice tiles from the board. Players are going to earn points for each of the following. Each ice tile they control, each Mooglu that they have removed, and each ice tile that they have removed. The game ends when all players have run out of moves and the player with the most points survives the Arctic challenge of Arctia and wins the game, if such a thing is even possible. <laughs> all right, so thematically, this seems like a disaster. <laughs> Why were they fighting over real estate on a crumbling ice planet? I've got to imagine that either they were stranded there, in which case they should probably be cooperating, or the planet was rich with unobtainium. <laughs> which wasn't My mentioned, so we can't give them the benefit of the doubt on that I'm one. I'm trying to give them something to work with, because, ugh, <laughs> where was this? Well, obviously, there must be something on Arceo. Why would we go here? The theme does not make sense, and forget no. about it informing play. Oh, oh, man, no. I mean, it confused uh, play. Yeah, it actually made yeah. it worse. <laughs> if they had just said, put these rings one on top of the other until you can get these hexes, that would have been so much better. Yeah, why didn't they just leave it as a non-thematic, just obscure kind of strategy game? That would have been fine, in a way. Oh, yeah. I, I love abstracts. I don't mind that they don't have a theme. But if they do use a theme, it should at least, like you say, Celeste, inform play. And, you know, I don't like to use superlatives about games, but this might have been the worst connection between theme and game that I've, I've ever seen. <laughs> it's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah I, could, yeah. I think the theme actually sounds interesting, but mm -hmm. the game wasn't. One thing they did right was name the game Google Smart, meaning if you type in A-R-K-T-I-A into Google, this is all that comes up. It's an original name. Congratulations on yes. that. Yes. That's, that's not easy to do these days. Yeah. When you look at the picture, it just looks like a bunch of weird donuts and like... Yeah, they're like connected and stuff. It does be not a bad looking building, but it is a little cartoonish. I mm. don't mind the cover. If, if the game played at all like the cover, mm -hmm. then it might have been fun. But it looks like they should be like happy to be next to each other there in the picture you know like the yellow one fits nicely inside the little blue ring and like, yeah a little cooperativeness yeah it looks like on. a co-op <laughs> it's not right oh it's it's definitely not nothing cooperative about this game yeah it's basically nope. an area control game in its heart yeah well there's nothing intuitive either what's happening here like <laughs> it didn't make sense for when you could put something on top of something else or when you're trying to move your pieces you can move the whole stack or just one and you could jump all the way to the end of your row of pieces sometimes. And they also gave you this option to like sabotage yourself and just quit. Like, oh, I like the position I'm in. I'd like to end my game now and let everybody else play. Yeah, like I, I can't do any better. Therefore, I'm not moving anything. Ha. Right. And Celeste accidentally did that <laughs> like on turn three. No, it was a turn two, I think. Yeah, turn two, yeah. yeah, it was the second turn, I think. Yeah. So the computer gave her no warning. <laughs> to be fair to this game, we were playing in the least friendly interface. So <laughs> yeah. it, it is a, an, a, it's an obscure, yeah. unforgiving landscape of yukata.de, which I love. I love yukata.de <laughs> because it's yeah. so arcane. Yeah, that was not you trashing him. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. But for a game like this, I don't know that it, it is the most fair translation because it is a very unforgiving system. Yeah, I don't even know if it followed the real rules. 
I wanted to do things which I thought were totally legitimate moves, and the and the AI would just not not recognize it as a as a legitimate move. Well, wouldn't let us do otherwise. Maybe okay, so maybe I was misinterpreting what I read. That was a key rule that I think was hard to follow. Is that your color group had to stay next to each other, and if they got disconnected, they would be removed. I suspect this game might have played better in real life. It's one of those games where I think we would have grasped the concepts faster Mm. had we been able to physically touch. It certainly would be better to be moving around these large wooden pieces. I think it would feel better. Yeah, and to lay out a hex map and build it ourselves. I think the the tactile experience would have given us uh, at least a slightly better understanding. Also, we could have laid out samples first, meaning, okay, this is how you move, and we could have positioned the stuff on the board and practiced first. Yes, practice would have helped. Yeah, Yukata Dadi doesn't let you practice anything (laughs) or do sample moves of anything. (laughs) We could have forfeited, though, and started a new game if we wanted to, I guess. But But even then, you can't practice, meaning you can't show examples first. Like on Tabletop Simulator, we could start moving stuff around and say, okay, this is how we position it. But Yukata would never let you do that. It's just play the game. Yep. Mm-hmm. And go. <laughs> That's all Yukata games, though. They're just kind of like, you better know how to play already. Come on in. Mm-hmm. Right. All games on Yukata look similar, too, because, <laughs> yeah. because they're all on this very van- vanilla beige background. And they try to sort of shoehorn the gameplay into their style of programming. Mm -hmm. Just the basics, man. That's right. An interesting aspect of the game is the fact that the area itself starts to crumble. And so once you got all your pieces on the board, you have to start removing tiles off the board. And that's shrinking the area that you have to control as you play. Yep, and you get points every time you take one of those tiles off the board. So you kind of yeah, almost so. want to rush your pieces on the board, take up as much real estate as you can, and then start swiping them off the board. And then if you can't remove a tile after that point, you actually stop playing. Yep, that's game over. Yeah, once you can no longer make a legal move, that's it. Your your game has ended. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly, yeah. Hope it's, for the best that you don't get crushed along by everyone else. Yeah, it's kind of weird that your game ends before everybody else's. You're just kind of sitting there and watching after, like, hopefully, hoping your strategy worked out. Yeah, it's not weird, but as you say, Mike, often player elimination is not a popular game mechanic anymore. Used to be quite common. Can, can I can I draw the link to back to our very first episode and, and tell it to the judge? In oh, which, yeah. In which, in which all players are required... The game does not end until the last player reaches the the gentleman's club. <laughs> this is similar. Yeah, it, it's unfriendly in that way. Wait, <laughs> unfriendly? No, the game the game mechanic is unfriendly in that way. Both player elimination and reaching the club; those are both cruel and unusual game endings. No, no, hilariously frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll buy that. That's true. I mean, I think it would take a long time before you ended up with a game that was 45 minutes long. This is a 15-minute game. Yeah, Yeah, it's supposed to be, really should be a faster game. And for you, Celeste, it was way less than 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Like two minutes and you were done. (laughs) Okay, here we go. I'm done. (laughs) Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Arctia. Mike? The theme was nonsense, which took away from the gameplay in a big way for me. So I have to say bury it. Ed? It's an abstract strategy game with area control and area elimination. 
But the moving and the stacking rules aren't particularly intuitive, which left me uninterested in learning to do better. So I'm going to have to bury it for now. Evan? Obscure at best, tedious at worst. A theme which meant nothing to the game. And it's, I don't know, not an easy game to grasp. That's an anchor from which it can't escape. Bury it. That is the crux of it. The theme did not only fail to inform play, it confounded play. It was made up terms that were far from apropos and a building scenario that did not gel with the mechanics. Bury it. Other than that, it was great. Yeah. (laughs) where can you find the game? It might be out of print, but there are some used copies for sale online. 18 to $40, depending on where you shop. But hey, you know, save that money. Just go play it on Yukata DE and see what we're talking about. If you have thoughts about Arctia, let us know. We are at Witch Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and Twitch, 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. Thursday nights. And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you're doing. If you'd like more perks and content from our show, including our exclusive podcast for patrons only, bonus points, bonus points, bonus points. Just go to our website and become a supporter today. If you get us a chance, please leave us a rating, a review, a heart, a like, a shout out, a smiley face, anything that points others to our show. We really appreciate it and it helps us grow. We are at which game first. Happy gaming, explorers. Moogaloo's, really. Electric Moogaloo, yeah. Moogaloo, Moogaloo.